And I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible with, uh, with you this morning, uh, we've got Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Grab that Bible, open it up. I want you to follow along and see what God's Word has to say. Uh, not just taking my word for it, but seeing it uh, right before your eyes. You can find that passage in your pew Bibles on page 812, page 812. And I just want to uh, invite you, if you don't have a church home, and maybe you've come in here for the first time, maybe because of an invite from a friend, or, or you looked us up online, or maybe drove by this place and wondered what we did here on Sundays. If you don't have a church home, we want to just stop and say, uh, we're here every Sunday. And uh, we would invite you to be here uh, with us, to join with us as our family, and uh, get to know us a little bit as we get to know you, and how we can serve you, and how together we can serve Christ. And and this is what we do each and every Sunday. We sing praises to the Lord. We fellowship with one another. Uh, we spend time in prayer. And then we open up God's Word and we hear what God's Word has to say to all of us. All of us who need to hear from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and I will tell you, as, as my family is blessed by this place, I know your family will be blessed as well. And so hopefully you can be a part of that each and every Sunday with us if, if you don't have a church that you call your own. Well... Uh, every every Easter, uh, as a young pastor, I used to think that uh, what people were coming for was uh, the Easter story, and uh, that we would once again go back to one of those a uh, couple narratives that talk about that fateful morning, that glorious morning, and uh, and I used to think that that was was what pastors were supposed to do: go right back to the Easter story and and address the the gospel accounts of that. And as I've grown as a pastor and. I've come to understand the the wholeness of the Word of God, that every verse from Genesis to Revelation proclaims the glory of our risen Savior. From what the prophets told us of what he was going to do when he came, uh, to what the apostles said uh, of Jesus' own words, to what the apostles would share after Jesus had died, was buried, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven, every book, every jot and tittle of this scriptures reminds us that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior and Lord. And we praise him this morning as a result of what he has done, not only in his victory over the grave, but his victory for you and I as followers of his. And what I want to do this morning is is focus in on what we as a church have been focusing in on. We've been studying for some time as a congregation, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the most quoted the most famous, the most remembered of all sermons in human history. And Jesus has been talking to us, his followers, and reminding us that what Jesus calls us to as followers of his is to turn our worlds upside down. With regards to our attitudes, that the way we look at at people, the attitudes we have about ourselves and others, and attitudes towards God, they need to change. Uh, Our actions, the way we treat others, the way we treat those even closest to us in our marriages and in our family, to those uh, people that we come into contact with on a daily basis, our actions have to be Christ-centered. He goes on and he reminds us that our affections, how we interact with him, have to be different than our interactions with every other person in this world. That we need to look at our God who is in heaven and hallow his name as we learned in the Lord's Prayer. And then the last part of this season of teaching that Jesus has taught us in his sermon, our aspirations have to change. That which we pursue, that which we endeavor to have as people on this earth cannot be selfish. It cannot be pursuing the things that I desire or the things that I want, but they must be funneled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And in our text this morning, Jesus reminds us that while it may seem that there are a lot of do's and don'ts, if you will, within Christianity, it is right at this point that Jesus in our text reminds us that he has an offer that would be just unbelievable for us not to accept. It is the opportunity to be engaged in a relationship with him. Jesus is going to tell us this morning, have I got something for you? Jesus has a word for each of us this morning, whether this is our thousandth time in the church or this is our very first time in the church, Jesus has a word for us that will revolutionize and change your life if you will allow him to do so. And so we want to turn our attentions to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. A tradition that we have here is to uh, give uh, some real allegiance and credibility to God's Word by separating it from all other things that we read. And we're going to stand as we read God's Word in reverence to the Word that is read. And uh, I'll ask for God's blessing on our time, and we'll jump right into God's Word this morning. Here's what our text says before us. Again, if you have a pew Bible, page 812 to follow along. Here's what Jesus has to say. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Father God, on this glorious day where we remember your death, burial, and we rejoice in your resurrection, we pause and we say thank you. Thank you for what you have done in and through us. Lord, I pray that as we turn our attention to your words that we by your spirit would hear what you have to say to us. Lord, you have offered salvation. You've offered it to all in this place. Lord, you've offered it as a free gift by your hand. Lord, I pray that we would receive that. For those, Lord, who have never trusted you, that today, after what is shared this morning by what you say, they will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Lord, for those who have followed you for some time, that they would remember that the walk of Jesus Christ is one that perseveres to the end. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are following, who are struggling in their walk with you, that they would be encouraged this morning by what is shared, and that they would truly strive with all their heart to actively pursue you in all your ways. Now, Lord, I pray you'd speak through me. And that we would uh, all be changed as a result of what you have to say. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. If you have a TV, then you know and have heard the phrase, Have I got something for you? It follows a sales pitch of a product by a salesman on the TV who has told you about an invention that will revolutionize the way you live life. You know what I'm talking about, that cleaner that you can buy off the TV that will allow your kids to make mud pies in the middle of the living room with no concern of the mess that they're making because the cleaner will pick it up. How about those sauna shorts that you can buy that allow you to eat McDonald's and all sorts of fast food for every meal for the rest of your life, all the while always keeping that swimsuit figure and physique. You know about those headphones that you can buy that will allow you to have marital bliss and all marital uh, 
issues and struggles we put away because you'll be able to listen to your headphones and listen to the television all the while your, your uh, spouse there is sleeping silently next to you. How about that magic blender, that bullet blender that will allow you to be the life of the party even though your jokes are awful? All these things that we think will help us, that will change the way we live life. What is it about us that makes us so gullible for such things? You see, the answer is is that the people who invent these things seek to try to alleviate some of the frustrations and some of the issues that we have in life. And I won't, by any stretch of the imagination, try to have you embarrass yourself, but I'm going to believe that a good majority of us have, have bought these products and the problem is, is when we buy them, they usually don't turn out the way that we wanted them to. They didn't live up to their billing. Well, there was a woman in our church, a gullible woman who will remain nameless. Her name's Amanda, by the way. And, <laughs> and, and she bought one of these said products. And it was, it was pretty early in our marriage, but, but long enough she had, she had come to uh, uh, love me, all of who I am, and my idiosyncrasies and issues. And, and one day I wasn't home, and... Uh, because of her weak will and uh, because of money that was burning in her pocket, she, she was watching TV and, and she had come upon a product that she thought was not for her but for her husband. You see, after a little while, after you've been married, the issues and, and things that you thought you could live with, you, you struggle to be able to live with after a couple of years. And, and some of you know I am of the Middle Eastern background. And, and as a Middle Eastern individual, we... Let's just say we are hairy people. Let's just leave it at that. And, and my wife thought that uh, removing some of that might be a blessing, that, that, that her husband may like it. Well, after I got over the issue that my wife didn't love all of me, okay, and only part, she said, well, don't worry about it. We'll try it. Just try it, and we'll see what happens. And, and the product came in, and, and I won't name the product because we're, we're worried that we might get sued. But... Uh, um, I tried the product, and, and she's there, and, and, uh, and we tried just a little spot on, on my shoulders, and, and, uh, and then the oddest thing began to happen. There was an odd smell in the room, and what sounded like frying eggs, to which my shoulders were smoking. I, I know some of you don't know this, but I used to have a beautiful mane of hair before that experiment. And that product lived up to its billing that it would remove hair. It just didn't tell me it would be the absolute most excruciating pain I had ever experienced. I would have blisters and all of that. Well, God bless my wife and her her decision to try to off me for life insurance reasons. But we buy these products because we have a need. Because there's a desire within us to to improve who we are or maybe what we have, maybe to alleviate some of that frustration and that. And what some of you this morning are coming to, not those who have been a part of our fellowship, but but I'm going to single out some of you that maybe have come and you're critical of this. Maybe someone has dragged you. Maybe your mom said you're not going to get any food unless you come to church with me. And so you better come and put a smile on so the pastor thinks that you're going to be here. Well, I'm going to believe that some of us are here and we're pretty critical of, of this whole Christianity thing. Maybe we're critical of, of, of the whole religion thing. And maybe you've come to say this is all a sham, and, and what the preacher is doing is he's just God's middleman just trying to sell a product. Well, I want to remind you this morning that the one who is sharing something 
who's sharing you an invitation that he's got something for you is not a TV spokesman or a washed-up actor from Hollywood. He is Jesus Christ, the greatest man who ever lived, the one who revolutionized this world, whose teaching still today in millions of places throughout this earth is being proclaimed as the truth to eternal life. Billions of people have bowed the knee to this Jesus, this Jesus who has changed the world, who's whose life determines our calendar and set times. This Jesus who did such amazing things that is recorded both by secular and uh, Christian uh, historians. This Jesus has a word for you this morning. A word that he is offering to you. And you can look at it from a critical perspective and critical point of view. Or you can believe what he says, that he is truly the Son of God who came from heaven to earth to live a life of perfection that you and I might be saved from our sins. The Bible says that when we trust him and believe in that, that we can be called children of God. That we can enjoy blessing and, and wholeness of life in this life. And we can enjoy the supreme intimacy with God in the life to come. Well, Jesus shares how we get there and what he articulates before us. A word that I think is very important for us to hear. And to do so, I want to look under three headings this morning so that you can follow along. And number two, that you will know that the sermon at some point will come to an end. And so here's what I first want to share with you this morning. And that is that as we look at this text, Jesus reminds us about some of the problems that we must address. There are some problems that we have, and Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, reminds us of these problems. You see, the advertisers are right in those infomercials. We do have problems. We do have needs. We have areas in our life that need some real help. But Jesus says that these issues are more uh, involved than just our fitness needs or or what we want to fix on our body. They're, They're grander and more great than the stubborn stains in your carpets or the wrinkled laundry that you're worried about. You see, the Bible over and over again has two themes. Theme number one is that you and I have a problem called sin. Each of us are sinners. And that because we're sinners, we have a second theme that we read throughout Scripture, and that is that you and I have a need for a Savior. And throughout Scripture, the Bible tells us over and over again that our sin has caused a rift between us and God. And that because of that sin, there are consequences. Notice in the text this morning, in verse 7, Jesus shares some of the consequences that come as a result of sin. They are in the three words that Jesus shares. Notice, let me just read that verse again. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. I want you to see that there is something in each of those words of ask, seek, and knock that I think are important to bring to remembrance this morning. First of all, when we see the word ask, I want you to be reminded that you and I as human beings are lacking something. We are lacking something. Notice within the word, before we even ask what we are going to ask for, that inherent within that word asking is the acknowledgement that we are lacking something. What I mean by that is when you ask any other individual for something, you are acknowledging, I have a need and you are the one who can provide it for me. Or you might be able to help me accomplish or alleviate that need that I have. In all ways, when we ask, we are declaring to the world around us, we are a needy people. Now, it's easy for us to see that with our children. 
With our kids, we recognize and know that they are dependent, that they are needy, and that's why they're asking over and over again, Mom, can I have? Dad, can I have? Dad, I need. Mom, I need. And we hear this on a daily basis because children are dependent. But one thing we forget about in our own lives is that we as adults, even though we have our own bank accounts and have our own homes and our our own cars and our own jobs, we too are dependent people. We are dependent and we lack and we have needs. And and you say, but Tim, you don't understand. I'm a well put together person. I've got everything in order. All contingencies are covered and and taken care of. I, I don't worry about that stuff. Well, let me ask you, are there times of anxiety in your life? When you worry about the finances, when you worry about that job deadline, when you worry about that relationship, the very essence of our worries and anxiety show us that we are not in control, that we do not have all things under our hands and in our lives. What I mean by that is when we worry or are anxious, we are worried about something we have no control over. And if we have no control over that, then we are lacking the ability to know how to interact with today's issues before us and even tomorrow's events. And so we find ourselves lacking. The Bible says that not only do we lack in, in the here and now with regards to our life and our breath, in our minds, and the strength that God's given us, our provision and our protection. But we are told that the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we lack the ability to right that relationship that has been marred by sin. The Bible's going to tell us next week in our text, if, if, you, if you're able to come, that there are two ways. One that is broad that leads to destruction. One that is narrow that leads to eternal bliss with God. And the problem is, because of our sin, We can't choose the right path on our own. God is the one who has to do that for us. And so we find ourselves lacking this morning, lacking for today, and lacking for the eternity of tomorrow. Now notice the next thing that Jesus says. He says that we are seeking. Notice we're looking for something. Instead of allowing our lack to throw us to the feet of Jesus, we turn around and instead of pursuing him, we start pursuing the things of this world. We begin to look at the things of this world as, as the mechanism that will fill our empty lives. And so we begin to look at things in our lives and say, well, if I get this or I do that, that will fulfill me. That will bring me contentment. Some of you this morning are looking for that job promotion or that new position at a new company. And you say, there people will take uh, a look at me and take notice of me and I'll be respected as Mr. Big Shot in the office. Maybe it's a role outside of work where people will recognize and know you as an important somebody. Maybe it's not the issue of a position. Maybe it's possessions. Some of us have this issue where, and I know I struggle with it, if I only had this kind of house or that type of car, or, or that possession, that new electronic device. When, when we're in the store and, and we're looking, we, we look at that item as if it's going to change the way we live. It's going to change how we look at life. It'll bring a level of happiness. If I could only have that dress or, or that piece of clothing, whatever it is, then I'll be fulfilled. It'll bring me contentment. How about pleasures? Some of us this morning are trying to fill our lives And we're looking for that certain something. And we're doing so at the bottom of a pill bottle or the bottle of alcohol or maybe some another legal drug. Maybe it's the pleasures of this life, the appetites that we have. It's pursuing the fleshly, sensual desires that that our bodies seem to just desire more and more. Whatever it is, we need to stop and, and, and ask the question, can we truly find happiness? Can we truly find contentment? 
in this life through the things of this world. Jesus tells us that these things that advertise such joy and peace and and happiness, those temporal things that are there in many ways for our good that we allow to become idols in our life, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 19 through 21 that three things will happen to those temporal things. Moths will come in and destroy. Rust will devour them. Or thieves will come and take them away. That's the problem with tangible things. And so Jesus says over and over again, I know you're looking for something, but stop trying to lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth and lay up treasures in heaven where no moth can destroy it, where no thief can take it away, and no rust can devour it as a result uh, because it is in the hands of God. You know, the problem with searching for the things of substance in this world, instead of choosing Christ, but seeking after these things, is that when we get them, it only gives us a hunger for more. C.S. Lewis, the great thinker of a generation ago, said that when we pursue the things of this world and we make them our focus, it is as if we are drinking salt water of the great oceans of the world. That what we begin to do is as we drink, we think that we are filling ourselves, and the problem with salt water is it only makes you more thirsty. And so that car or that house or that thing, that item, those pills, they only give you a hunger and thirst for more that they never satisfy the things that are, you're yearning for in this life. And so as a result of that, we know one of the scriptures, one of the books of scripture, the book of Ecclesiastes, is the grand experiment. King Solomon, in the last part of his life, wrote this book looking back at his life. And he said, you know what? I did an experiment that I could find contentment in the position that I had. He was one of the greatest kings to have ever lived. And he says, that didn't work. Because what am I leaving this this grand kingdom to? Someone's going to take it and they're going to ruin it. Then he said, well, maybe what I'll do is I'll I'll fill my life with possessions. And I'll make uh, the most glorious uh, temple and the most glorious kingdom that I could ever make. And and then I'm going to die. And and what's going to happen? It's just going to fall apart. Time and and age is going to see it come to its end. And he says, okay, maybe it's not in the things of this world. Maybe what I'll do is I'll pursue pleasure. This man with 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, had all that you could imagine from a human perspective. Every need that a man has would be satisfied with that many women around him. And he says that didn't do it either. You see, what Solomon learned after each of these experiments was that when we try to fill our lives, when we go looking in this world to fulfill the eternal thing that God has put within each and every one of us, we will only hunger and look for more. What Solomon says after each of those experiments is that they are meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. They are literally chasing after the wind. And some of us this morning are chasing after the wind. We're never going to grab it. And Jesus has a word for us. Instead of seeking the things of this world to fulfill us, that we should seek him and his kingdom. And he articulates that when we seek him and his kingdom, all the things that we're worried about, all the things that, that, that we desire will be added to us. Now, right away, I want to be careful that I don't paint the picture that God is this genie in a bottle, if you will, that we rub the bottle or the lamp and, and he comes out and says, whatever you want. No, brothers and sisters, what God says is, I will fulfill your needs. I will take care of you, but not in the way that you think. You see, as children, Our kids think they know how they should be treated. They know how they should, all of their needs are. 
But as parents, we know better than that, don't we? We know what their real needs are. And our Father in heaven knows our desires and he knows our needs and he knows what's best for us. And he says he wants us to look for him and not the things of this world. Notice one other thing that we see. Uh, We long for a relationship. Notice in the text it says we are to knock. Inherent within what Jesus is using of this word knock is that Jesus is saying when there's a door before you, you are to knock. You're communicating. And I want you to know a knock does nothing if there's no one behind the door. And so Jesus is articulating that we're not just longing for a building or a place, but we're longing for a person because a knock communicates to another person, another individual. And what God is saying is is that as we knock, we need to know who we are knocking for. What good is it to knock at a door where there's no one to answer? And inherent within us is a longing for significance and meaning in life. For all of us, whether young or old, rich or poor, wherever we come from, whatever backgrounds we have, every human being has an inherent desire to see their lives matter. That at the end of the day, all of us would know we had a purpose in this life. That our life meant something. One of the great thinkers of all of human history was a man named Blaise Pascal. And he articulated this. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person. And it can never, listen, he says, it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that yearning that you have, that, that thing that you're trying to fill up, is what God, your creator, built inside of you to bring you back to himself. That longing that you have is to put you in a place to strive after him and not the things of this world. Now, during Jesus' day when he preached this message, the people of his day had come to think that they could fill their lives with significance by doing good works, by filling their lives and, and, and pursuing the good needs and good deeds and religion that they would find significance and peace. But here's the problem. The Bible says because of our sin, that even our grandest attempts at righteousness are but filthy rags before him. We've got a real problem. You see, as Christians, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that in our sin, we are blind, dead, and held captive by the evil one. And we are in trouble, that we are in so much trouble that we can't get out of it no matter what we try to do. And so Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, articulates, notice the second point this morning, the place we go to find the answer. Notice in our text that the scripture now moves us to where we find this. Where do we go when we're asking? Where do we go when we're seeking? Where do we go when we're knocking at the door? The answer in verses 8 through 11 says, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. For which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give a stone? Or who, if, if a son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to him who asks? Now, Jesus says, okay, the place you need to go is to my Father in heaven. That is where you're to go. So if you want to know how to fill your life with good things, stop trying to do it on your own, and turn to your God, who is in heaven, who, who gives and promises to give good things to those whom he loves. 
Now notice, who is this God in heaven? Notice the text tells us he is our Father who is in heaven. This is the second time that Jesus has shared this phrase in the Sermon on the Mount. The first time was a chapter ago where Jesus said, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so Jesus turns our attention again that if you want to find contentment and, and uh, joy and peace in this present world, you've got to go outside of this world to find the answer. And that answer is our God and Father who is in heaven. Now notice a couple of things about this phrase, our Father who is in heaven. Number one, the word Father reminds us of a familiarity that we desire. A familiarity. This God, we are reminded, is the God who created us. He is the one who our whole existence is existence is dependent upon. If we want to understand our whole humanity, our identity, if we want to understand our idiosyncrasies, our struggles, our pains, that which brings us joy, we must go to the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. Did you know your Father in heaven knows you better than you know yourself? I was reminded of that truth just a couple uh, weeks ago when my five-year-old son, Luke, uh, had a question. See, we were talking about our upcoming trip uh, that we were taking for spring break to San Antonio, and the boys were, the older two boys were talking about how much they enjoyed getting on an airplane, to which little Luke says, well, I've never been on an airplane. Noah, our oldest one, says, yes, you have, Luke. You remember, we got on the plane, we went to this place to go visit this family and these friends, don't you remember? And Luke is perplexed. He says, I don't remember any of it. And Noah says, hey, Luke, you've been on the plane. Just trust me. To which Luke is totally perplexed. Man, he he, he is trying to figure out how can I not remember every aspect of my life? And then a couple days later, you could tell, you know, as parents, you know your kids are struggling with something, but you want them to kind of work through it. And so you could tell by his questions that Luke's asking these questions inside. Wait a minute, there's a part of my life that I don't know about? So he comes after a meal one uh, one evening, and he says, Dad, can, can I ask you a question? Yes, yeah, son, what, what's your question? It's really been bothering me, Dad. I, I just, I, Dad, do you remember when I was born? <laughs> yes, yeah, son, I remember. It was a glorious day. It was a beautiful day. I remember, I remember you being born. I remember how happy you and uh, my mother, uh, your mother and I were. I remember holding you in my arms for the first time. I remember the joy that you brought your brothers, this new baby. Well, Dad, do you remember when I was, was crawling? Yes, yeah, son, I remember those days. Do you remember when I walked? Yeah, yeah, I remember all of that. Are you sure you remember it? To which I said, yes, son, I am positive. I remember all of your days. To which, I kid you not, he went, whew, I'm glad someone does because I don't. And here is a wonderful illustration of what Jesus is trying to tell you. I know you may feel like in a sea of people, the billions that are on this earth, that you are a nobody. That your existence really doesn't make a difference. And maybe because of the human beings around you, you are ignored. Maybe because of, uh, of, of the fast-paced life that we live, maybe you have fallen between the cracks. But I want to remind you something this Easter day, that none of you have fallen through the cracks with your Father who is in heaven. That God loves you, that he knows you, he knows the hairs that are on your head or what you used to have before your wife burned them all off, okay? 
He knows your comings and your goings when you rise and when you lay down. He knows your issues and your struggles. God says he knows you. He knows all of your sins, all of your failures. And here's what we've come to know, that God loves you. He loves you. And he has a grand plan for your life. He has a desire to be involved in a relationship with you. And and this Father in heaven is a God who loves you so incredibly dearly. And so maybe you're not loved by anybody today. Maybe you find yourself in total isolation, but you can know without a shadow of a doubt there is one who loves you. And I will tell you, it would be far better to be loved by God than to be not loved by God, but loved by the rest of the world. Because God is a God who cares for those whom he loves. But notice, before we get too far and say, well, God is just love and and therefore there is nothing we have to worry about. There's no judgment. There's no, you know, I can do whatever I want and God's just going to love me. Notice it says, our Father who is in heaven. Anytime the Bible speaks of the phrase in heaven, it always speaks of authority. And so this Father who loves you is also the one who is in charge. He's the one who sets the rules. You see, in in our house with our three boys, there's a phrase that I use, hey, as long as you're under my roof, it's going to be my way or the highway. Let me tell you something. I don't know if you know it, but you're under God's roof today. You know, this little ball that we call earth, man, God is the one who rules it and who reigns in it. And you have a choice today. Are you going to live in obedience to that Uh, house rules that God has laid forth, your Father in heaven, are you going to live in rebellion to those things? God makes it clear that we must turn to him. we got to turn to him. we got to give our lives to him. And notice what he does when we turn our life to him. Because here's the thing. As a God who loves and a God who is the supreme authority, when he looks at our sin, a holy God says, I can't have relationship with that. And the only thing a holy God can do is pour out his righteous indignation and wrath on us. Paul, the apostle Paul says that we are children of God's wrath. Why? Because we are sinners. We are disobedient. We're following the ways of the devil and the ways of this world instead of following Christ and his kingdom But here's the thing. This is the story of Easter. God had every right to leave us in our sin and and send us to an eternal place called hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. God, in his right, could have done that. Because of his justice, he could have left us in our sin. But thanks be to God that that Easter, really rewind a little bit to that Christmas, where Christmas came and that glorious first Christmas was where God sent his son, Jesus, You see, God gives good gifts. You see, this God doesn't leave us in our sin, but he gives us the opportunity to turn away from our sin and turn back to God and to rejoice in the risen Savior who took away our sins. And in that, he gives good gifts. Notice verses 9 and 10. He articulates that for everyone who asks, they'll receive. To everyone who seeks, they'll find. To the one who knocks, the door will be open. And he says here, a father who who's even evil, and hopefully your father isn't an evil father. May He may be marred by sin, and he may be marred by selfishness. But even evil fathers, they don't give their children bad things. When they ask for bread, they, they don't get handed a rock. When they ask for a fish, they're not handed a venomous snake. No, even a, a father who struggles with sin is one who desires to give good things to his children. But even with the right intentions that we have as fathers and as mothers, 
Even our greatest desire to give good things don't always work out. A couple weeks ago, my son Joshua came to me and said, Dad, I've enrolled in a talent show. And I'm not going to sing and I'm not going to do a dance, but, but they've opened up the competition to be opportunities for you to do non-performing arts. And our son Joshua, he's our, he's our builder. He loves Legos. And, and we love to see him. His eyes just open wide when a new set of Legos comes because his mind just goes to all these things that he can build. I said, son, what are you going to build? And he says, I have this design. I, I want to build a working airport. And I want to build it. And he says, I, I've done some research. And this guy's only eight years old. Man, he's already smarter than his dad is. And he says, I want fuel trucks and, and, and baggage cars. And, and, and I want airplanes of different sizes because that's what I saw when I was at the airport. But he says, Dad, one thing I'm missing is, is one special plane. The plane that's going to sit on the runway for everybody to see. He says, Dad, could, could you buy me an airplane? To which I said, Son, those are expensive, but let's see what we can do. So we go on Amazon, and we're looking, and I find this airplane, this beautiful airplane. And I'm a cheapskate, by the way. That's my confession to you. And, and I find it for a price that I, I couldn't, couldn't pass up. And I said, son, look what your father has found, an airplane. You got a good dad. To which my son says, Dad, whatever you think is right, whatever you think, I'm happy with it, Dad. If you think it's okay, let's get that plane. I said, son, we're going to get you this plane. And I said, man, what a great dad. And, and, you know, Joshua, guys, you know what happens. Then your son walks away, Dad is great. He's great, great, great. To which your wife rolls her eyes, you know, like, are you kidding me? You just bought praise from your kid. And, and, And I'll take it any way I can get it, by the way. And remind you that my wife burned all my hair off, but just so you know that, okay? <laughs> and so we wait. And, and my son, who, who isn't all that patient, the, the plane doesn't come for a couple days. And we're going to head off to vacation. We're going to be gone a week. And every day we have vacation. Dad, do you think the package is there? Do you think the plane's made? I'm not going to have much time to build the plane. My son, your dad said he bought it. And when he bought it, it's as good as gold, man. You're going to get it. And we get back, and, and there's no plane. And now I'm starting to wonder, and two days after we get back, a package comes. Hoo-hoo, finally. To which I tell my son, hey, hey there's a package uh, they said that, that came in the mail. Let's go get it, and we go and get it. And, you know, the package is supposed to be about this size, right? It's about this big. It's about that wide. Something's wrong. Something's terribly wrong. We open the package, and it's not the plane. The great deal that Dad got were the stickers to the plane. Pray for us. We're, we're in our fourth week of counseling, and things are, things are progressing well. He's starting to talk again in public. But here's what I want to tell you. When we talk about good gifts, and when Jesus says, even those fathers who are evil give their kids good gifts, even us as fathers can mess up. But I want you to know something. When God says he's going to give good gifts, he never makes a mistake. Tim makes a mistake, and and your father can make mistakes. But our God who is in heaven gives good gifts. The book of James talks about this God who gives good gifts. He says this, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father 
who does not shift. He doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't uh, have variables that he has to worry about. He doesn't have to read the fine print. God is the writer of the fine print. He knows what good gifts to give. And I want to share with you two gifts that he gives. Number one, the gifts of daily use. Write that somewhere just to be reminded of that. You know, this morning we have much to be thankful for because God has given us a multitude, a myriad of gifts this morning. The sun rose this morning. Did you know scientists say that if, if the sun was a few inches to the uh, farther away from this little ball we call earth, we would freeze to death? Do you know a couple inches closer and we would all burn up? Did you know that God has just the perfect little atmosphere for us? That seven billion people woke up this morning and had enough oxygen to take in? That their God has provided enough food and water for all of us? That God has given us the ability. You came from wonderful homes. God's the provider of that. You're driving in, in cars and transportation to get you from point A to point B. God provided that. Your ability to work. Your ability to have life and breath and all of that. God has given you all of it. Now here's the thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says he doesn't just give that to his family, to his children. But the Bible says that he gives sun and rain to each one, to his friends and to his enemies. That same sun that we are rejoicing in, that that glorious allowance that we have a glorious day on Resurrection Sunday where we praise the name of Jesus, that same sun that is shining on us, the faithful, is given to the worst enemy of God. That's how good God is. Even though we don't deserve it, God gives it. Those are the gifts of daily use. Notice there's a gift of deliverance as well. The Bible tells us that the way that we find our lives and find the antidote for sin is through the gift of Jesus Christ. Paul tells the church at Corinth in his second letter, after articulating the the generosity that a group of people had given in helping another group of people, God says, let us not forget to be thankful for God's indescribable gift of his son Jesus. That word indescribable in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is only used that time, that one time in Scripture. Literally, it means that we cannot fathom. We cannot trace out. We cannot put to thought the greatness of what God gave us in Jesus Christ. But let me help you try to describe this indescribable gift The sovereign of the universe, Jesus Christ, enthroned in heaven with myriad of angels worshiping him. At a time prior to our existence here on earth, made a decision knowing we would fall in our sin. Made a decision amongst himself and the Trinity. The three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Son said, Father, for your glory and for their rescue, I will go and become one of them. I will leave all that heaven has to offer, all of its worship and all of its acclaim. I will leave heaven and I will become one of them. I will put on flesh. I will make my dwelling among them. And for 33 years, Jesus came and put constrictions on his life. Instead of doing everything and anything he wanted to do as the prerogative of the King of kings and Lord of lords, he put himself into time. He put himself into space. He put himself into flesh. He would live a life with all of those limitations around him, and he would do so with utter perfection. All the while, from his birth to his eventual death, people would want to kill him. People would hate him. They would mock him. They would scorn him. And what would he do? 
He would heal people. He would take care of their diseases. He would, he would release them of demons. He would give them teachings that would bring joy and peace in a world of sin and frustration. And they would hang him on a cross for that. And Jesus would go to that cross and he would endure all kinds of pain and sorrow, being viewed as a guilty man even though he had done no sin. He would go to the cross and die for you and me. That is the indescribable gift. But here's the rest of the story. The rest of the story is he would go to the grave tasting death for us so that no longer would death be our enemy, no longer would sin be our problem because Jesus Christ once and for all paid it in full. That's what the banners are talking about. If you look, all of those sins and all of those issues, the story of the, the resurrected Lord is that they're paid in full. It is finished, Jesus said. Our issue with sin is done for. And what Easter is all about is thanking God for his indescribable gift. Now, here's the thing. Some of us will say, well, what do I got to do? I've got my checkbook ready, just like those infomercials. I'll pay the three installments of $29.95. Here's the thing that God says. That indescribable gift that delivers us from our sins is by his grace. So these, these gifts that God gives, you haven't deserved them. I haven't merited them. God gives them freely to us. He gives them freely to us in his son. And he does so because he wants to be glorified. Now here's the thing. Our infomercial friends have got it right. Listen to me very clearly. This offer that doesn't cost you a penny. You can't pay for it. You can't be put on an installment payment. You need to understand that just like that infomercial on TV, this offer Jesus gives is for a limited time. The clock is ticking. See, the Bible says that uh, at the point of death comes judgment. So we have this life and, and this time that today is the day of salvation. You're not afforded tomorrow. You don't know what a day might bring. God forbid that, that you would leave this place today and be in a car accident. God forbid that your body would be ravaged by some terrible disease. We have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring, let alone today. And we need to know that today God is calling you by his grace, by his mercy, to turn and bow the knee to Jesus. It won't cost you a penny. It won't be something that you can buy through your good works. So how do we get it? Notice my final point this morning is the only path that allows this access. Do you want this gift? Some will say, yes, absolutely. Well, it begins with faith. A wholehearted trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has done what he says he has done, and that he has accomplished exactly what he said he would accomplish. It involves, faith does, by putting your entire trust and life into his hands. And that's going to require some things of us. Notice the first thing it requires. It requires that we approach God humbly. Write that down. We're going to approach God humbly. What it means is this. As Jesus has articulated, we just respond in agreement with him. Yes, God, I am longing for something. Yes, God, I am looking for something I will never find on my own. Yes, God, I am lacking the ability to get my relationship right with you. And when we agree with that, that is the first step. That's the confession uh, that we make. That we give and say, Lord, because of my sin, I find myself in a hole that I can't get myself out of. And so it begins by humbly approaching him and agreeing with him. Listen, you cannot embrace the truth of the Easter story while holding on to your preferences and prerogatives. You can't do it. 
And so you've got to release that and say, God, yeah, I am in trouble. God, I am dead and held captive by the evil one. I can't get out of this mess on my own. And I'm in agreement with you with regards to that. Number two, it involves accepting God's invitation. Notice verse 8. One of the most glorious things that he could ever say. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. I want you to know something about this invitation. It is offered to all. And you don't have to clean yourself up and fix yourself up to get there. Uh, some of you are wondering, you know, what does it take? What do I have to do? It takes bowing the knee to Jesus, agreeing with him and putting your trust in him. And here's what Jesus says. It's for you. This section of people, it's for you. Young and old, whether you've got money or don't, whatever background you have, Jesus says, I'm offering you the deal of a lifetime. It is by my grace that you can have eternal life. And he's not just for you, but it's for you. This group of people. But you say this group of people, everybody else, look at them. They're a ragged bunch, aren't they? They've got a lot of issues and a lot of struggles. They're fighting through some difficult things. And Jesus says, no matter your struggles, no matter your issues, no matter how far you feel you are away from me, I love you and I care about you. Well, let's move to this group. What about them? Jesus invites you as well. Every person in this place here, Jesus says to you, I am offering you something that will change your life. But you say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the sins that are in my life. You don't know how I've cursed the name of God so often. God says this invitation is for you. And not to keep the last to feel like they're the least, but this group as well. God says he knows you, that he loves you, that he sent his son to die the price of your sin. And not just your sin, but the rest of us, all of our sin, we're all guilty. And so Jesus' invitation isn't just for the righteous. For the Bible says there is none righteous, not even one. And so he says, will you agree with me that you're a sinner in need of grace? Because when you ask with that spirit, when you seek with that spirit, when you knock with that spirit, he says, you ask, it will be given. You seek, you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. God says there's a guarantee. The guarantee is when you agree with me that you're a sinner in need of grace and you pursue me like that, then I will come in. And I will enter your life and I will change your life and I will lead you in the way of everlasting. But notice, it involves actively pursuing his ways. You see, we get this idea that all I need to do is make a decision and in some very quick moment on an Easter Sunday when I've been brought to this church, that the pastor's saying, I just need to raise my hand. I need to walk the aisle. I need to just make a decision. I want to make something abundantly clear. That if you think that this is a one-day decision, you're wrong. You see, the Bible speaks over and over and over again that believing isn't just agreeing with Jesus, but it is now the changing by the Spirit's work in your life, the changing of pursuing the things of the flesh and the things of our desires and now making Christ the centerpiece of our lives. What Jesus says, you want to follow me? You're going to deny yourself. You're going to take up the cross and you'll follow me. You see, while salvation is free, the Bible makes it abundantly clear it will cost us all that we have. It will change the way we look at life. It will change the way that we live for ourselves and we begin to live for Christ. Now notice, why does it have to be active? In the text, in the original Greek language, 
of which the Bible was written. The word ask, the word seek, and the word knock are found in what we call the present tense. So what better translated it would be is this. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and, and keep knocking. It is an ongoing, perpetual thing. You see, to receive God's good gifts means that you and I bow the knee to Jesus, not just today, but every day for the rest of our lives. And we keep knocking, and we keep seeking, and we keep asking this God who says he will never leave us nor forsake us. This God who says, I want to give you good things by my grace. When you do these things, God says, I am there with you, and I will give you everything you need. The scripture tells us, for he who began a good work in us will see it to the day of completion. He's with us. So then there's a two-point application, and I'll close our time. There's two points of application. There's one, I'd like to say, of surrender. For those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have received this free gift of of salvation some time ago, this passage reminds us that we need to keep fighting the good fight. We need to keep the faith. We need to run the race. Don't grow weary. I know it's hard. I know it's not easy. I know we battle with sin. And for you, the child of God, God reminds us that he is with us and he will give us all that we need to get across the finish line. Rejoice in the story of Easter that the greatest enemy we had was death and sin. And Jesus said, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It has been swallowed up by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So take heart, Christian. Take heart that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But this passage also speaks to us, and it reminds us that when we ask and when we seek and when we knock for the first time, Luke says in his gospel that God gives good gifts and he gives his spirit. And so maybe today you've heard this story for the first time, the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe... You got dragged here and you weren't planning on hearing it, but something now is working in your heart and and the Lord's speaking to you. Maybe this is the hundredth time you've heard it and it's finally starting to click. The Bible is saying to you that God is offering you salvation and he's offering it and he says this, I've laid down my life, Jesus says, so that you might be able to lay your life down for me. You see, Jesus isn't asking that we lay down our life to take care of our sin, but he's calling us to lay down our life for his service. So for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God. Not by works that any of us could boast. But God says when we come to him, we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works. So good works don't save us, but the saving faith produces good works in us. Have you bowed the knee to Jesus this morning? Have you given your life to him? God says when we ask and when we seek and we knock, Jesus will open that door and he will allow us to come in. We're going to close with a, a word of prayer and a song. And I would invite you if, you, if you have any prayer concerns, if you have any questions about what has been articulated, I've asked some of our elders and their wives, the leaders of this church, those who have been given charge to, to shepherd this flock, uh, to be in the back. And, and, and if you have questions about the gospel, if you, if you want to learn a little bit more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, they're there for you to be able to counsel you and pray with you. And we want to give you that opportunity today. 
But what we're going to do is close in a word of prayer. Let me pray for us, and then we'll close our time. Don't leave this place without knowing for a shadow of a doubt that you've accepted the greatest offer ever given mankind, the gift of Jesus Christ for our salvation and an opportunity to relate and be in a relationship with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for what was paid on that cross. But Lord, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are thankful for the empty tomb. For the empty tomb reminds us that you are no longer dead, but you're alive. And because you're alive, it allows us fellowship with you. And so, Lord, I pray, first of all, for the followers of Jesus Christ in this place, on this another Easter. Lord, let us never grow tired. Let us never grow weary of of the remembrance of what your Son has done for us. Lord, I pray that this, this word today would inspire us. It would motivate us to continue to fight the good fight, to keep fighting the good faith and, and to be um, running the race as difficult at times as it may be. But Lord, I also pray for the person here today who's never bowed the knee to Jesus, never given their lives to him. Lord, that they would recognize that right now they're on a road that leads to destruction. And Lord, that they would take pause and inventory of their life and see their sin is an affront to a holy God. And that they would stop and say, Lord, I surrender all. Lord, I give you my life. Lord, I pray that they would talk with someone about that decision, that that in this quiet moment, that they would recognize that they're a sinner in need of your salvation and that you freely give to all who ask. You freely give to all who seek. You freely give to all those who knock. That you say you will allow them to come in and you will dine with them and you will give them a new life and a new heart and a new direction. That the old will be gone and the new will have come. Lord, I pray today they would experience that. That joy that is found only in their Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Because it is now that we can have a new life in you. And that's why we rejoice, Lord. Because you've taken that which was dead. And you made it alive. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen and amen.